Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The FT. Hello and welcome back to FT Science. For our last show before the Christmas New Year break, we're going to focus on the science and technology of brewing and distilling. And there's no one better to talk to us about beer and whiskey than Simon Jackson, Chief Executive of the Institute of Brewing and Distilling, the field's professional body in the UK. Welcome, Simon. Good morning, Clive. And I'm also delighted to have in the studio, taking part in our festive conversation, our regular guest, Diana Garnham, Chief Executive of Britain's Science Council. Hello, Diana. Hello, Clive. And since it's the last FT Science of 2010, we're going to round things off by talking about the big science stories of the year. I'm Clive Cookson, and you're listening to FT Science. Simon, tell us first how you got into the brewing industry and what you've been up to before we get into the more scientific stuff. Well, Clive, I've been lucky enough to be in the uh, brewing industry since uh, um, about uh, the late 70s, 1979, I joined uh, the brewing industry. I'm a, a botanist and zoologist by uh, background, and uh, I wanted to apply my, my science in a, in a working environment and... Uh, I happen to quite like beer as well, so the two things came nicely together. What are the biggest changes since 79? That's uh, 30 years? Well, yes, indeed, 30 years. Well, there's some, there's some macro uh, changes in that uh, the, the well brewing industry has changed quite a lot in that time. Um, if you look at the UK, the beer industry has actually it peaked out in the year I joined in 79, and since then... Uh, Gosh, you've been uh, on the downhill slide, I, I, Simon. I, I have, but please don't blame me, uh, <laughs> is the message I passed to my colleagues. Um, but the beer industry in the UK peaked out at volume terms in, in 79, 80, and that's to do with changing social habits and social demographics as much as anything else. Uh, but overall, um, consumption of beer across the world is actually in quite significant growth. Uh, as beer consumption in emerging economies uh, is growing quite significantly. Well, we're here particularly to talk about the stuff itself, how it's brewed and what it tastes like, rather than the sort of macroeconomics yes. and business of beer. How has beer changed, if at all, to the consumer? When I um, sip my pint in the pub, how has that changed? Well, in some respects, not at all. Uh, beer, is, is, beer is made with, uh, with a, a few number of, of raw ingredients, uh, malted barley, uh, water, hops and yeast, and that's been the same for many centuries now. Um, originally, beer was brewed, uh, uh, originally originated from the Middle East, where beer was brewed with, uh, with, uh, with uh, cereal mashes, uh, and that's still very much the case. That the, the source of the main raw material and uh, the science of beer is, is predicated on cereal science. Uh, so that respect, beer hasn't changed that much, but of course the appearance of beer and beer styles has changed quite radically as brewers produce different variations and different styles of beer to meet different consumer ch- changes. And in that time, of course... Brewers have also understood the science of what they're doing, so it's moved from being an art to being a process where both art and science are applied in equal measure, and probably science in more measure than art now. What is the essence of the science of brewing, then? Can you sum it up? Fermentation. 
Um, so that the key uh, the key change that uh, the brewers uh, undertake in the brewing process is that they will extract uh, sugar from uh, from uh, cereals, and then the uh, with the the beautiful wonderful beast called yeast, which then ferments the sugars and converts the sugar to uh, alcohols and to uh, carbon dioxide. So that's the real magic and core of the brewing process, and that's the the, the major major change. So in t- from a scientific point of view, understanding fermentation is absolutely fundamental uh, to the advances that brewers have made in terms of, of beer production and understanding uh, flavour uh, creation through the fermentation process. Do the beers taste better today? I think they do. There's a much great, greater range of beer, certainly produced by the microbreweries. Would you think the beer tastes better today? Well, of course, we don't really know what beer tasted like. But in the in the in the in the medium past, but yes, I mean the 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 reality is that brewers now understand much better uh, what makes up the flavour of beer and are much able, more able to control that through their understanding of the science, again particularly of fermentation, and through consistent process control. So beer tastes more consistent now, but also brewers are able to produce a wider range of different flavours. It's very difficult, isn't it, when the traditions of beer are really quite basic and almost like a cottage industry. Um, there was so much that could go wrong. How are you persuading small brewers to use increasing amounts of appropriate technology? Yes, I think that the way the um, small brewers approach the market is that they very much want to operate in in a, in a craft scenario, handmade, handcrafted, local. Um, but um, those brewers also understand that uh, maintaining consistency of, of product is actually key to what they're doing. And uh, uh, we're delighted in that uh, the relationship we have with many, many of the small microbrewers is that they are applying um, appropriately the technology which is understood within the, uh, within the industry. Uh, for instance, the importance of hygiene, the importance of controlling your fermentations consistently, etc. So, uh, yes, the application is still there at whatever scale you are. On the very small scale, of course, a lot of home brewing has always taken place, and that's very uneven, isn't it? Well, yes, it is. Although I have to say that in both in the UK and in the USA, there are very big uh, organisations that represent home brewers as well. Um, so there are a lot of hobby brewers, um, particularly in the UK, and they have their own association. And some of them are really masters of what they're doing. And uh, it's fascinating to talk to them in terms of their understanding and, and personal knowledge they've committed to their their their, their home brewing. Now, you've got some of the ingredients in front of you. Sadly, Simon, you didn't bring any of the finished liquid. I think you were taking an abstemious view of a morning recording, but you've brought some <laughs> hops and some malted barley. T- tell us about those. Yes, well, I said earlier there are four main ingredients, and I, I suppose most people would always, uh, when they were asked what beer was made with, would, would hopefully still say malted barley. So I brought a little sample here for you to, to look at, which mm. is um, pale ale uh, malted barley. So barley is a, a cereal grown uh, quite uh, widely in the UK, particularly in the, the, the northeast. Barley likes to have quite dry growing conditions, so the agronomy is better in, in the east rather than the west of the UK. Um, the barley grain is the seed, obviously, of the, of the grass, the barley grass, and um, the grain um, is full of starch. And uh, what the maltster does for the brewer is that it um, uh, convinces the barley grain that it's actually uh, about to... Uh, uh, grow, so it stimulates uh, the growth of the grain, um, and as that grain is stimulated to start growing, it uh, uh, it takes the starch from the uh, from the storage and starts to convert the starch into sugars, so that the plant, if it grew, would then be able to access those sugars. 
At that stage, the, uh, the malts then stops that process by gentle heating or kilning. So you end up with a wonderful individual package. Each one of these little barley grains, now malt grain, contains uh, converted starch and also has got delicious, toasty, uh, biscuity flavours from the kilning process. Okay, Simon, so I'm now going to give you a little, lovely little sample a little of this. into our hands. So you'll uh, hopefully recognise the aroma straight away. Well, I live mm. in Chiswick, very close mm. to the last big brewery operating in London, the Fru- Fuller's Brewery, and when yes. the wind is in the right direction, I think it's a fabulous smell. It is a, a, lush, li- a luscious the, aroma, isn't these it? These barley grains yeah. remind me of it. Yeah. And then you've got some hops to give it the bitter flavour. That's right. So um, the, the, uh, the, the brewer, when he gets the, um, the malt, will then grind the malt and extract the sugar. And then, uh, having done that, um, the, uh, the extracted sugar, which is called wort, it's uh, quite an interesting word, uh, is then boiled. Um, and that's the boiling does a number of things, uh, including sterilising the, uh, the brew at that stage. And during the uh, boiling, we add hops. Um, and the, I've got a sample here of some hops, actually, from uh, New Zealand. Not many people would perhaps know that hops are grown in New Zealand. Um, now, the thing about hops is they give two different things to beer. They give the beer uh, its bitterness and also its aroma. So in the boiling process, the brewer is extracting uh, both constituents. If you just rub these together and smell them, you'll get that wonderful aroma. It's fantastic. You would make a a man's perfume out of this. Well, well, there you are. There are, in fact, actually people who are doing such things. So um, in in these wonderful hops, uh, Latin humulus lupulus, uh, there are uh, resins, and these resins during the boiling process are extracted. And actually, just a little bit of chemistry here, the resins actually uh, are isomerized by the boiling process. And pre-boiling, the resins don't have a bitter, bitter characteristic, but after the boiling and isomerization, the, uh, the, the resins then uh, have, a, have a bitter effect in terms of palate. And then the other thing we're extracting are the essential oils, uh, which is the thing you can smell when you rub the hops together, which is that lovely, luscious, hoppy, citrusy, um, distinctive smell of hops, um, very very characteristic. These, this is a bit, this is a particularly fine example. This this is a hop uh, which is grown particularly for its aroma characteristics rather than its bitterness characteristics. Do they um, they still grow hops in Kent though? They're on a very small scale. Yes, there are, in the UK there are two uh, still very strong hold, uh, good strongholds of, of hop uh, growing. One is in the West Midlands, Hereford. Uh, Worcestershire area and the other one is in Kent and I think Kent is the one that probably most people are aware of and uh, in the late summer when the hop vines are at their full height of maybe 15 or 16 feet is a wonderful sight um, and of course if, you, if you're walking if you're going walking that part of the world during the hop picking you just have the sensational uh, permanent aroma of hops in the, in the countryside, it's gorgeous. The aroma which is still wafting around the studio <laughs> is an amazing mixture of Bitter, aromatic sweetness. It's yes. fantastic. It's yes. really great. And I've still got the multi flavour in my mouth because I <laughs> yep. did scrunch a few of your grains. And unlike sort of dried um, barley, it's actually quite edible, isn't it? It's quite oh, soft. Oh, it's lovely. It's lovely, yes. It's like, it's like toast. It it's is. Like to- you get toasty flavours, biscuity flavours, obviously multi flavours. And of course, for some people, if they were lucky enough to be with us and chewing this wonderful malt, they might be reminiscent to things like Horlicks or Robertine, uh, which, are, which are made with malted barley as well. Can I ask you about some of the other properties of the, um, the hops? Am I right in thinking that they were added to beer in larger quantities when the beer was transported over the tropics to make the India Pale Ale? And doesn't it keep it clean? 
Yes, um, hops. Um, there's a lead here to the third point about hops, which is not only to give us a, a Roman bitterness, but there are other resins in the hops called the beta acids, which have a, a mild antibacterial uh, effect. Um, and again, I think a lot of listeners might know that historically beer was. Uh, the, the beverage of, of choice for people rather than water because uh, beer doesn't support pathogens. So the term small beer, for instance, came from a time when people would drink um, large quantities of beer during the day, but it was quite low in alcohol, but it was safe to drink. Now, that effect in terms of anti- antibacterial and uh, storage capacity created by hops was used by uh, brewers when they were exporting beer over long distances. So India Pale Ale, very famous uh, type of beer, was originally brewed uh, very high in alcohol and also very high bitterness levels um, so that it could survive the long passage to, to India. Have these ingredients changed at all over the last 20 or 30 years, the hops, the yeast? Not the fundamentally, but uh, going back to Diana's question, in terms of the quantities being used, yes, they have changed. So historically, beer would have been probably uh, most of the beer quite uh, higher in alcohol than nowadays. Um, it would have been higher in sweetness, so the fermentation would have been quite so ple- complete and the bitterness levels would have been higher. And, and of course, a lot of beers now are, are, are tending to be slightly lower in alcohol, but certainly much more subtle in terms of their hop delivery and also their flavour flavor delivery. And that's, again, associated with brewers meeting, changing, changing uh, st- uh, demands of consumers, really. And one last question before we leave brewing. I'm reminded by that green microphone in front of you green beer and i don't mean st patrick's day i mean the industry is making a big scientific effort to become more environmentally friendly isn't it yes um and as as brewers understand uh, the technology and the science of of brewing more and more then they're able to apply that in terms of uh, their their green credentials and uh, it's nice to see that both brewers and distillers are making significant efforts to uh, lower their uh, uh, their environmental impact and also improve the sustainability of their industries and that's at a, that's at a global level. Uh, but the UK has taken a very strong lead on this. In particular, the UK brewing industry has got a very good track record in uh, reducing primary energy consumption in the brewing process. I have to say the brewing, the brewing process is quite energy um, uh, hungry because of we, we, we heat the process up at one stage, then we cool it down again, and then we uh, control the fermentation, which, yes. which is, is uh, uh, exothermic. Anyhow, um, our primary energy consumption has now been reduced by about a third on a relative basis to 20 years ago. Um, and uh, also our water usage, um, we're quite hungry for water. And historically, breweries might have used about uh, eight, eight or nine uh, units of water per unit of produced beer. Uh, that's now down to an average of about five. And there are some breweries in the world that are now down at, at level of two. And I think that demonstrates the significant progress that's been made. So it's a real agenda. It's been an agenda being driven for, for all, all proper reasons. And again, the appliance of technology is really quite important to the progress that's been made. Thank you, Simon. Now, since this is the last FT Science podcast of 2010, I thought we'd have a little chat to round things off about the big science stories of the year, either new research or science policy. Diana, what would you kick off with? Well, of course, we have a change of government, so we have a new science minister um, and a whole raft of new ideas and policies around science, but, of course, most significantly a comprehensive spending review And I guess for me, the big story is the way the science community came together to make the case, you know, for for continued investment in science and technology. And we are quite lucky in that we've got at least a level uh, spending review. And I think extending your remarks globally, I think worldwide, governments have been trying to this year to keep 
spending on R&D up, public spending, as they've cut other areas of um, government spending. So I think it's been a good story. Simon, what, have any stories struck you this year? Well, I was uh, particularly interested, as a, as, a, as a botanist and zoologist by, by original background, I was quite interested to see the outcome of the biodiversity uh, uh, projects that have been happening, and uh, particularly the identification of a host of new species that have not been identified before in, in the in the oceans. From a personal point of view, I think this is so important because as we get more and more concerned about the loss the loss of uh, of the gene pool by the loss of species, we're actually discovering that there are many, many more species, much more biodiversity out there than we thought. And I think that's encouraging for the future because biodiversity by definition, is so important to our scientific advances, and to, particularly in terms of uh, potential uh, health and the uh, future of medicine. I agree. It's been very exciting. We've even had a few new mammals this year, two from Madagascar, which is possibly the world's most threatened biodiversity hotspot. There was a new lemur this week, and last month we had a new carnivore. So although species are disappearing, at least we're finding new ones as well. Not exactly to compensate, but I think it's very, very important. I think for me, um, two of the most important stories of the year have been sort of outside biosciences. Um, one is that CERN, the European Particle Physics Lab in Geneva, has been running the LHC Atom Smasher successfully without incident and accumulating a vast amount of data, which I think will produce some interesting discoveries next year. They've also just recently uh, discovered, or rather made, antimatter in a mm. larger quantity, so that's exciting too. And the other thing which I think could be very important in terms of applying science in two or three decades is that the fundamental science of quantum computing has taken a step forward. They've actually found ways to make these super-fast, amazing computers for the mid-20th century. There have been several important theoretical steps there. Please join us again on January the 4th for more tales from the world of science. But now I'd like to thank Simon and Diana for joining me, and thank you for listening. FT Science was produced by Emily Cadman. I'm Clive Cookson. Goodbye, and have a great holiday. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.